0: In this episode, guest host and award-winning author Heather Bell Adams interviews Ron Rash, aptly called by the New York Times one of the great American authors at work today. His latest book is In the Valley, named a Gardening Gun and Atlanta Journal-Constitution Best Book of the Year and winner of the 2020 Thomas Robinson Prize for Southern Literature. In the Valley is a collection of 10 searing stories in the turn of the villainous, propelled Serena to national acclaim in a long awaited novella. The story Baptism was chosen for inclusion in the Best American Short Stories 2018 and Neighbors was selected by Jonathan Lethem for the Best American Mystery Stories 2019. Ron Rash has long been a revered presence in the landscape of American letters. A virtuosic novelist, poet and story writer, he evokes the beauty and brutality of the land, the relentless tension between past and present, The unquenchable human desire to be a little bit better than circumstances would seem to allow, to paraphrase Faulkner. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, landiswade.com, and I'd love to have you visit For all things related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's patreoncom coms forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show, where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. Now, I'm also pleased today to have guest host Heather Bell Adams, the author of the novels the Road and The Good Luck Stone. You can listen to me interview Heather uh, on the podcast. Just check that out. Uh, She's also an award-winning writer. Uh, When Heather wraps it up, we're going to jump over to our Patreon channel, where both Heather and I are going to get a chance to uh, interview Ron Rash about writing. You can join us there at uh, Patreon, com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. But now I'm turning the podcast steering wheel over to Heather to welcome Ron, and uh, I'm going to sit back and enjoy this uh, interview.
1: Well, thank you, Landis. Thank you for that lovely introduction and for the opportunity to be here today. I have long admired Ron Rash, as I tell him every time I see him, Uh, and I am just so excited for the opportunity to talk with you, Ron, today about In the Valley, which uh, Landis mentioned is a collection of nine short stories and a novella. Uh, based on Serena. The title's In the Valley, of course, and it came out in 2020, which of course was a difficult, shall we say, time to release a book. Um, but how would you like to introduce this collection to readers? What would you um, like to say about it, just as an introduction for us?
2: Well, it's, um, I think it's, um, it's a, a collection that is it, it was affected by COVID. I would say that first, because I think that's been on all of our minds. Um, uh, certainly, uh, one of the stories, uh, I think that, the, you know, the connection there is very clear in the Valley actually deals with, uh, the 1918 flu epidemic. And certainly I think there is a connection there and, and a, one that I wanted to emphasize because I think, uh, you know sometimes one of the best ways to talk about the present is to talk about the past it can kind of resonate uh toward us and and i also hope that these stories even though they're stories about people in very tough circumstances uh we do see them as as uh was just mentioned you know the idea of characters attempting as as I think most people do to be a little bit better than their circumstances allow. And I I hope that it, it and not all the stories, but in many of them, I think we see characters trying to do that.
1: Well, yeah, that's a great introduction. And it kind of reminds me of a theme or maybe theme is a bit too strong of a word, but uh, you know, a theme that resonated with me from the collection is that of neighbors and of community and what we owe and don't owe to each other as neighbors and members of the same community um during times of global pandemic and and not yeah. um you know we have a short story in the collection named neighbors of course which for our listeners is about a woman who you know perhaps her neighbors it's a historical story I'll say that her neighbors probably think they know her but they really don't, right? They really are, are missing a vital <laughs> piece of information about her. Um, I appreciated how in that story, you there's a point in the story at which you uh, list things that the neighbors are likely to do for her, ways that they might help her out. And in that passage, I was really struck by the fact that you gave each of those neighbors specific names, you know, as you did that, Um, it was just a really nice touch. And I I made note also of in the story Last, Bur- Last Bridge Burned, um, which is a story about a, a gas station employee who recalls a woman he once helped years ago, um, woman in trouble. There's a song in that story, and the lyrics kind of speak to this idea of, of neighbors and community, too. I just want to read briefly. It says... On a late night east of Nashville, my last bridge burned, my money gone. The kindness of a stranger showed me a way to go on. is this you know you talk about um people rising above their circumstances uh, in some of the stories, and again uh, the ways in which they interact with their neighbors and are a member of a community is that is that something that you had in mind as you prepared the collection and wrote these stories
2: yes, and, and I I, when I put a collection together, uh, whether it was Burning Bright, uh, which was an earlier collection, I really want the I want it to be a little bit like a CD, uh, a good CD, and that is where uh, the selection, uh, where the stories come, the order in which they come, uh, that ultimately, uh, you know, the sum is greater than the individual stories. That you know, we get the, the whole gives a, a resonance that goes beyond just uh, a single story. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm glad. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. And sometimes the complexity of, of, of neighbors and of uh, affiliation, which I think, unfortunately, one reason I wanted to start the collection off with that story is that, you know, we live at a time when sometimes uh, the worst tendencies of tribalism uh can cause uh, a lack of unity. And, and, and I think uh, for, for the young, you know, the young woman in, the, in that opening story, I mean, she will, re- her allegiances are torn and, and uh, there's a, there's a tragic, tragicness, I think, to her dilemma in that story.
1: Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned that about tribalism as well, because I think it, is in the news every day, right? I mean, there are, it just doesn't seem to to go away, that issue. And you address it in different stories in the collection. I'm, I'm glad you brought up your uh, mindset when you were putting the collection together, because that's something I was wondering about, too. We have some stories in this collection uh, set back in time. They're historical. And we have others that are more of a contemporary feel and time setting. Uh, what was your thinking there as you were ordering the stories? Were you intentionally trying to move us back and forth in time or kind of how did that work for you?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I actually, in pretty much every collection I've done, uh, particularly the last three or four, I've really tried to uh, give a, the reader a sense of almost being unmoored in time. Uh, you, know, I, that, you know, we're kind of moving in and out. It's almost like a weave through time as we go into the stories. And and I actually hope there are moments when a, a reader starts a story, unsure of what time period we're in. Uh, and and I like that idea. It just seems to me it establishes a kind of rhythm, but um, it's also just, I think a kind of constant reminder of how the past and the present echo uh, within each other.
1: Mm, I love that. Well, yes, as I was reading it, um the first time and potentially the second as well i i did feel what you describe i think if i if i remember the order correctly there's one moment in the collection where we go from a story where somebody is using a desktop computer to look something mm-hmm. up and to perform some research and then we immediately jump to the next story. A man rides up on horseback, and we're, uh, you know, trying to figure out. Obviously, people can come up mm-hmm. on horseback um, modern day as well. But there's this moment, as you say, of, um, you know, figuring that out, right, and riding that wave, and and uh, and determining where we are in time. But I do think it reminds uh, the reader. I guess, of the cyclical nature of time, right? And and certain themes come back again and again um, it, and are just, um, you know, somewhat general to humanity regardless of, of the time period of the story. Um, the story that I'm thinking of where uh, we open with someone on horseback or, or arriving soon mm-hmm. on horseback is the baptism, of course, which... You know, I love all the stories in this collection, but um, I do have a lot of notes and questions for you about about the baptism and several others, of course. Um, As we talked about neighbors and that theme of neighbors, there's a great quote at the beginning of the baptism, uh, which is a story about a uh, well, our main character is Reverend Yates, and he is faced with an unlikely baptism request in the middle of winter. Uh, and this, at the beginning of the story, there's a quote where, uh, another character says that's a mighty unneighborly way to be greeted, uh, referring to someone, uh, with a shotgun, right? Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that's a, it's a great line. Um, at the end of that story, and of course we won't give away too much of, of what happens and doesn't happen in it, but I would love to get your thoughts on, we have a character at the end of that story who, to my mind, is really contemplating his duty to the other um, main character in the story and, and his own role and responsibility, both to, you know, that other character, his his profession, his community. Uh would love to, to hear more about that and, you know, perhaps where the idea for that story originated.
2: Well, I've always been a... Uh, Fan of Hawthorne, more not so much as novels, but as short stories. I, and and I wanted that story to feel a little bit like uh, a little bit of a Hawthorne tinge story. Uh, the name Pearl uh, mm-hmm. might give a you know give give a little bit of that, since that was the the, the girl in uh, Scarlet Letter. Scarlet Letter.
1: Uh,
2: yeah, but but I I wanted it to almost be. Uh, I, I like short stories. Short stories can close out. Sometimes they can do that very dramatically, but they can also open up at the end. And uh, one of my goals in that particular story was to—I mean, uh, to almost uh, a metaphysical mystery. I mean, it's—I it's, it, mean, for for uh, the the, uh, the pastor uh, because uh, he is conflicted, and and I think. A lot of times, that's when, uh, for me, that stories don't always, and novels, for that matter, don't necessarily answer our questions, but they raise them, and and they can lead us into these this sense of uh, wonder. And that that that's not always a positive thing, but just this sense of uh, of entering a kind of deeper level of understanding or tempting or deeper level of mystery. And I think as a writer, you you understand that uh, that sometimes. That's 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 what you want. You want to deepen the mystery. And actually, uh, I think it was. I've heard this attributed to everybody from Muriel Spark to Francis Bacon, but uh, somebody said uh, the role of the artist is to deepen the mystery. And I I, I hope that story does that for you know uh, the man in the story, but also ultimately for the uh, reader as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well. I- and that's beautifully said. I so appreciate that. I, I do love a story that, um, ends with that sort of contemplation because I think that then leads to contemplation in the reader as well. Right. Mm -hmm. You, You know, um, and so I, like I said, that, that's just, beautifully said and i i don't know if you might like to read for us either you know it can be from the baptism it can be from any of the stories in the collection the novella just whatever um you might like to share with us this might be a good opportunity to do that
2: yeah well i thought what i would read is is uh, just a couple about two minutes but it uh i it was interesting to go back to serena pemberton uh i had not wanted to do that and uh in many ways, <laughs> that, that book had put me in a pretty dark place when I wrote, uh, you know, the, the novel years ago. But uh, uh, a character, particularly Ross in that in the novella, a character who was a minor character in Serena, his story had always kind of haunted me. I always knew there was more there. But uh, I thought having Serena come back would be interesting. Uh, I hope it is. And I've never written a novella. And, and I don't know. Have you ever written one, Heather?
1: I have not. And that was actually a question I had for you was how that came about. You know, was it just that you wrote it and that happened to be the length that it turned out and you felt uh, that's what, you know, did the characters and the story justice? Or did you set out to have it be a novella from the beginning?
2: Well, I, I realized when I when I really had that sense, I wanted to talk you know, to, to deal more with what happened, uh, at the, Pem- with the Pembertons, or at least the workers, uh, and Serena Pemberton coming back, uh, but I knew I didn't want to do a novel. I just felt like that might be too much like Ghostbusters 2. So what I did was, I, I just thought, but a novella, and I'd never done it, i have never written one, and, I, I. but I love the form, uh, when it's done well, uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing form, and, uh, I found out how difficult it is. Hmm. It it is a difficult form, but um, uh, it was it was a challenge, and uh, I I was kind of glad to do it. But I started off with Serena coming back, and I and I thought, well, you know, she's almost. uh, I hope the reader feels she's almost a goddess, like uh, a sinister goddess, in some ways. But I thought, well, you know, it'd be interesting, how would Serena return? And just the idea of her descending out of the clouds, I thought would be an interesting way of having her uh, come back, uh, at least, you know, to to North America, because she's in Brazil. Um, and uh, I thought that, I actually had to do some research to make sure there would be a flight that would do that. And actually I found out there was, so I was relieved at that. But this is where she comes back, and uh, at the end of this little section, uh, she will be a very, uh, one of the few reporters who's not cowed by uh, Serena Pemberton will ask a question. And uh, I will mention her a little bit more in just a moment. So uh, I'll read this. Yeah, When Serena Pemberton stepped out of the Commodore seaplane in July of 1931, A small but fervent contingent of reporters and photographers awaited her. Except for the pilot, she was alone. Those who would accompany her to the logging camp, both beast and human, had arrived by ship the night before. They were already on the train that would take them from Miami to North Carolina, all except for her minion Galloway, who procured an automobile to drive Serena to the station As the metal ramp was readied, Galloway positioned himself beside the bottom step. He was short and wiry, shabbily dressed, a purple stump protruding from one sleeve. As cameras flashed mere inches from her face, he did not blink. As Serena descended, the first question shouted at her addressed the rumors surrounding her husband's death. For a moment, it didn't appear she would answer but when her booted feet settled securely on the ground, the question was asked again, but with a caveat, that she loved her husband. I love my husband, but one always learns from disappointments. But what of his death, Mrs. Pemberton? And what of the many others of your acquaintance, the reporter asked. Logging is a dangerous business, she answered. Galloway was in front of her now, but Serena, almost a head taller, was clearly visible. He cleared a path as more questions came. Would she continue to fight against the National Park? And would she address the rumor that she was connected to the recent demise of Horace Kephart, the park's chief advocate? Did she oppose the Davis-Bacon Act? Why risk a transatlantic enterprise when she and her husband had achieved so much in the United States? Galloway opened the DeSoto's passenger door. Serena was about to get in when the sole woman in the group, a reporter for the New Republic, stepped close. She was very young, but like Serena, tall and blonde. When will you have achieved all your ambitions, Mrs. Pemberton, she asked, as others jostled around them. When the world and my will are one, Serena answered. And that woman is actually Martha Gellhorn, uh, who during World War II was a well-known woman. Uh, uh, Journalist actually went to uh, you know to the European theater was involved in you know war a lot of wartime correspondent uh, correspondence was uh, married to Ernest Hemingway right. uh, wrote novels herself but she was a very intrepid uh, woman uh, it, it, you know for people who know about her and I thought she would be the kind of person that might step up and ask a question so that was kind of fun to bring her into it and, and also to bring Serena back.
1: Yes, we definitely start off strong there with um, being reminded of just who Serena is and and how she interacts with people and even just, you know, how she sets foot on the ground. I mean, just every gesture of hers um, reveals her personality, I think. And one of my favorite aspects of her that appears and reappears throughout the novella is uh, The Eagle, yeah. And there's this description, Mrs. Pemberton had trained an eagle to kill rattlesnakes and bring them back to her like a setter retrieving quail. And so we have these eagles that show up. I wondered if you might want to talk about the significance of of those eagles.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I think uh, uh, certainly all sorts of significance. Uh, well, I mean, I hope I hope it resonates in a number of ways, even to the idea of America in some ways. Um, but also very literally, and and I thought uh, I wanted Serena to do something uh, that would make her appear mythic to these loggers, which is you know uh, and, and and intimidating, uh, and and the one one of the few things that they might fear would be rattlesnakes, and yet here's Serena who can train an eagle and send it out after that, and that was kind of an interesting uh, uh, research project I had when I wrote Serena. I came up with that idea, and I thought, well. Can I make this believable? It sounds pretty outrageous. So um, I actually managed to interview uh, one of uh, 12 people in the United States at that time who was hunting with an eagle, a guy named uh, Scott Simpson out in uh, Wyoming. And uh, he kind of, you know, said, yeah, it would be possible. I mean, he'd never done it, but he he felt like it. knowing what he had, having trained eagles, he felt like it would, would indeed be possible. And uh, so I got to do a lot of research. Uh, found out about particular eagles in Mongolia, uh, eagles that are actually used to hunt wolves. So these are very ferocious creatures. And uh, and I think you know Serena being able to tame one certainly, uh, I hope, uh, gives the reader a sense that this is no ordinary uh, human being, uh, woman or male.
1: That's right. Well, I I think it harkens back to how you described her as mythic, right? It, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we've got an eagle in the story The Belt. Yeah. Uh, it Jubal, is that how you pronounce the character's name? Or Jubal. Yeah, Jub, Jubal. Yeah. I like that better. <laughs> I'm glad you corrected <laughs> me. Uh there's an eagle on his belt in that story, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And then we have ra- a raven, maybe multiple, but I know a raven reference in a, the story called Flight, yeah. which for our listeners is about a park ranger named Stacy who takes action when her job and safety are threatened. Uh, and she's referred to as as the raven. Do you want to talk about how you uh, came up with that for her character and kind of what that tells us ab- about her character? Yeah,
2: I mean, one thing I think you probably already realize, I'm fascinated with raptors. Well, not just raptors, but birds in general. But uh, particularly, uh, I've always been amazed at, you know, the raven's intelligence uh, and and crows, too, for that matter. They're they're very intelligent creatures. But, yeah, I, I just, you know, sometimes the characters do things that I can't quite understand. But, but it makes sense to them. And I think uh, she, she's one of those characters for me because, uh, I mean, I do understand the sense that she wants to be something other than a victim. And, right. and it, you know, actually when, and I think it's pretty clear, it's not spelled out, but she's been sexually abused. Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, there's a moment when she, she sees a bird in flight away from her in that story. and. I think for her, this she wants to regain some sense of power, and and she does. I mean, she actually is able to take on this man who is abusive in a different kind of way. But but certainly, uh, we we understand that he is a man uh, capable of of real really heinous things. So yeah, it was a story. uh, It's a story that is. I felt writing it was disturbing. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly where she is at the end. I mean, there's a sense of triumph, but, uh, almost at a cost of her humanity. Mm. I mean, she, in a sense, has, feels like she's kind of left the bounds of that, which maybe is, at least in her mind, and, and this is a fictional story. It's one character. I'm not making any kind of assumption about anyone else, except this character who came to me. Um, she, uh, She's found a way, uh, something that she needs or mm-hmm. feels she needs, is compelled toward, I guess, maybe. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a story that for me that, I, I, and you know this, I mean, uh, when we write, these characters very often show up and they reveal themselves more than we reveal them.
1: Hmm. Yes, well, and I... I read it as she perhaps was taking this opportunity to as you say find her her power find a way to not be a victim in a way that she hadn't been able to before right and so even yeah. that in and of itself represents some kind of growth or you know whatever we want to call it um advancement yeah. toward um toward not being a victim but as you say to some extent she is then floating above as a bird, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and looking down on what might be occurring. Um, so, yeah. not, not and as a forward. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's where we leave. Her. Where we right.
2: and, and, you know, one thing about short stories, I think Alice Monroe said that uh, uh, a novel is like living in a house, but a short story is like kind of walking through a room. So, we just kind of get these glances very often in short stories of a character. And so uh, how she will end up, we don't know. But I do think, as you said, I mean, I think there is some kind of, I mean, it's obviously there's a transformation there. Something important has happened to her. And in her mind, certainly something uh, needed.
1: Yes. And that theme of transformation, I wonder if that shows up in the story called L'homme Blessé as well, where we have our main character, uh, Jake, is an art teacher who is asked to look at paintings created by a student's great uncle who served in World War II in France. And Jake spends some time with these paintings. And at the end of the story, he, much like the great uncle, emerges from time with the paintings Shall we say that he has changed Uh, what, you know, he, he, he leaves the paintings and he rides to the water's edge or walks to the water's edge. See, I put him on horseback, but he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) See what happened there. Um, He drives to the water's edge, um, which seems perhaps significant in terms of landscape. I don't know. Um, And, he looks up. There's this beautiful description where he sees mistletoe clustered like bouquets offered to the emerging stars, and I wonder what is he seeing? Uh, you know, obviously beyond the mistletoe that he describes, um, what, what is Jake seeing at the end?
2: Yeah, well, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think something you know there has been a degree of something has changed. You know, he has been transformed in some way, and I think the, the the clearest indication is he actually sleeps when he's in that room. You know, he hasn't been able to sleep, and I think there's a sense that some kind of at least perhaps just temporary, we don't know once again, but uh, a, a sense of peace, of acceptance, um, certainly kinship with the older soldier. Uh, and and it, you know, it, it's kind of fun to kind of play off traditional myths. Uh, you know, the idea of the descent into the underworld where the character goes you know, down and comes back. Uh, so there's a kind of descent uh, in the cave and, and even in that darkened room. So I, I love kind of playing with myth that way. And, uh, you know, you don't want it to be heavy handed, but, but it's there. And, it, and I think it, you hope it, that that adds a little resonance to the story.
1: Yes, well, definitely with respect to both um, the great uncle and what of his story we get to learn. And then Jake, there is this idea of time spent, um, if not in trial, then in something close to it. And then, uh, as you say, almost a a blessing, maybe we'll harken back to the title of the story, Lone Blessé, Mm -hmm. and then an emergence into a new reality. Although the great uncle, I guess, when he emerges, he says that he doesn't see anything but death. <laughs> or so, It's not a direct quote, but um, it seemed to me, Jake, maybe, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but did see more. Um, and as you say, he had throughout the story not been able to sleep. And so I loved it that even in this room which was not a comfortably appointed room uh necessarily uh, he he was able to finally find that respite
2: yeah well, I, i'm I'm glad you read it that way I, that's the way i felt about it so uh, you know sometimes the reader maybe is not, uh, the writer like well there's a claim now you know among that you know the writer's not the best judge of characters and there's something true to that but yeah i, I feel something's happened within the text and, yeah
0: yeah. And, and I'd like to jump back in. I've been enjoying listening to this before we jump over to Patreon and have a talk with Ron Rash about uh, writing listeners. I, I've got a question, Ron, because I, yeah. as I read the book, uh, I was with this theme of flight here. We got we got ravens, we got bald eagles, but I was drawn to this story, Sad Man in the Sky, in, in part because I got really curious pretty quickly, you know, about w- what this guy was going to do. Um, so Sort of a practical question. This is a story about a man who is separated from his family, has an opportunity to take a ride in a helicopter, and he's going to try to get closer. He's going to fly to try to get closer. And I'm just wondering, Ron, have you ever flown in a helicopter? And did it make a difference in your life?
2: <laughs> well, here's the here's the sad part. I shouldn't admit this, but I haven't. <laughs> I have never been in a helicopter, but I have. People who have and yeah. uh, people <laughs> who, who've actually flown them. So, uh, yeah, you know, this is this is where once again, the writer is, uh, you know, uh, I, maybe I don't know if that's a <laughs> thing or not. I, I hope that people who've who have uh, read the story and who've been in helicopters or driven them, uh, you know? Don't uh, I hope I didn't get anything wrong? I don't think I did. Actually, I, <laughs> I, I had somebody,
0: but yeah, that's kind of the fun
2: thing about being a writer—you
0: can just make it up. You know? Well, and the interesting thing is, you know, we were focused on the protagonist who's going <laughs> to drop something out of this uh, helicopter, and you had to study up on all the regulations about whether yeah, that's possible yeah. or not. But then yeah, the person—the yeah. the person who's really changed—is the pilot,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I and I think that's where, and I, I I think last lines and first lines are so important in short stories. And uh, I hope that you know when when the reader reads that last line, it, you know, there is that sense of really there's a real depth here and connection with the children and and uh, being a parent and all sorts of uh, yeah. But but yeah, it it is, and and I I think we don't really. I hope the reader. Doesn't really sense that till the very end, and I think that's when the story maybe elevates to another level. Uh, I hope it does.
0: Yeah, we, we might talk about some of that when we get over to Patreon. But I, one other thing, and before we finish this, is that is that although your stories really make us think, whether it's your short stories, your novellas, or your novels, you also add humor, Ron. And when I was reading, uh, <laughs> when I when I was reading the novella, uh, I got to this little part. Uh, where they were, they weren't sure they were going to be able to finish clear cutting in time. And one of the one of the guys said, "Well, you know, they might try to speed us up like they did to uh, my uncle Nebuchadnezzar, who worked." <laughs> and there was this efficiency expert who came in with a watch and timed Uncle Neb, changing them bobbins like it was a race or something and then said Uncle Neb had to do it at that speed all day, to which Uncle Neb asked the fella if he'd seen a power cord coming out his ass. The, fe- the fellow said no, and Uncle Neb said that's right, and he quit right there and there.
2: <laughs> well, I, you know, when people, sometimes when, uh, actually I had somebody tell me this recently, I wasn't <laughs> quite sure how to take it. Uh, somebody said, well, you know, I didn't know you were funny. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'm not Edgar growling Poe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But uh yeah, I mean and I you know, I actually uh you know I, I enjoy writing humor. This book actually is probably the only collection where I don't try to have a really humorous story in it, but but even in that, yeah, you do have a moments. But yeah, I love uh Writing humor, actually, uh, the, last, the last couple of stories I've written are, are humorous stories, and I yeah. need it right now. With COVID, it's funny, uh, uh, you know, the kind of uh, the darker things went through those months last year. I, I found myself writing more humor and almost uh, it's self-therapy
0: yeah it's great well look I, I just want the listeners to know that too that there's uncle neb in there too they can they yeah can catch on too. but uh first of all i want to thank heather uh for actually leading this conversation today. heather thanks for coming back on the podcast to be a guest host
1: thank great. you for having me it's been yeah. a lot of fun i've I would like to talk to Ron Rash about his writing for yeah. hours. So, and, you know, yeah, yeah. And we're sorry and we're gonna, we have to finish up.
0: <laughs> we're going to get the chance. We're going to jump over to Patreon. Listeners, you can join us at uh, com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Ron, thanks, man, for being on Charlotte Readers Podcast.
2: Oh, great. And, uh, you know, just tell your readers and listeners that I can't help it, but the ear, you know, I'm not used to earbuds, so they just kind of flying out. But,
0: uh, yeah. That's all right. They can't see that, Ron. They, okay. they can only hear you, so that's good. Oh, good. Well, that's yeah. even better.
2: I didn't even have to apologize. All
0: right. Yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, thanks a lot. We'll, we'll, we're going to head over to Patreon now. All right. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio,